0: Hi, my name is Rhonda Burchard. I partner with Marianne here at the River, and it's good to be with you again. Can I start over, Brenton? I'm sorry. Can I? Sorry about that. I was surprised about that. Okay. Hello, my name is Rhonda Burchard. I partner teaching with Marianne here at the River, and it's so good to be with you again. I'm grateful for the opportunity to teach God's word because it has the power to change lives like it has changed mine. And so I always account it a privilege to be, uh, sorry, I'll start one more time. This is kind of freaking me out, this camera. (laughs) Okay, and then I'll, I'll do it this time. Marianne says it does kind of mess with you a little bit. Hello, my name is Rhonda Burchard. I partner with Mary Ann teaching here at the river, and it's so good to be with you again. I'm grateful for the opportunity to teach God's word because it has the power to change lives like it has changed mine. And so I count it a privilege to be with you today. We are on lesson 21 in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 14. And in case you haven't heard, we are in the midst of the coronavirus. What an interesting time we are experiencing. New words have been introduced to our vocabulary. Concepts like pandemic and social distancing and face masks are now regular parts of our conversations and routines. In addition, though, some of us are feeling anxious and fearful. I'm going to give you a couple different scenarios Do any of these resonate with you? My husband's job is gone. Will he get it back? Will it even exist when the coronavirus has passed? In the meantime, how are we going to make ends meet? My business has been shut down. When can I open it again? How will I care for my employees and pay the bills while I wait for things to resolve? what about my kids? Schools are closed and we're spending so much time together. Online schooling, both teachers and parents are saying, aren't you kidding me? I did not sign up for this. How are we going to manage as a family? I'm a single mom. The pressure is increasing every day. What if I run out of money? I'm pregnant. I'm worried about my baby. Is she going to be okay? I am or someone I love is that in the at-risk category, what will happen if we get the virus? I'm elderly sheltering in place all alone. Does anyone know I'm even here? What if I get sick? Who will take care of me? I'm afraid. Any of those feel familiar to you? Well, what I have seen over these last few weeks is that all of us are impacted by this virus. And even though the impacts are different to each of us, we are all, every one of us, in our own way, in our own story, feeling it. One thing I have learned in doing ministry is that we really can't compare our pain. We can't compare our losses. All of us are suffering because our world is broken and in need of God's redemption. So before we even begin... Let's pray about these things. Oh, Lord, our concerns, our questions, our pain, and even our doubts, you see it all. Thank you for meeting us in the midst of this new normal. Help us, God, to see just a glimpse of your light and keep us on the path towards you. And I ask you, God, may each person viewing this teaching take away just one thing, To help them today. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. May we see it and believe it. Amen. Sometimes it's good for us to be reminded that we can acknowledge two very different things at the same time. We are suffering, and God is good. We're suffering, and God is good. And I believe He has a good word for us today. I'm actually really excited to share with you this week's passage, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 14. Peter's words are so rich, and some of them might be familiar to you. So go ahead and grab your Bible, pause the video if you need to, and let's look at it together. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 14, I'm going to read the entire passage, and I would love for you to follow along. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that is how the letter of First Peter ends. Regarding the kiss of love, Peter is clearly not practicing social distancing. I couldn't resist a little coronavirus humor. Something to mention in verse 13, Peter talks about Babylon. Now, that might be a little confusing. Most scholars believe it is a reference to the city of Rome. Remember, Peter is writing from Rome, and Christians there are in the midst of horrible persecution. In general, when the Bible says the word Babylon, it represents world power in opposition to God. And in this case, Peter is talking about Rome. Okay, let's jump into our passage. I've titled today's teaching, The Shepherd, the Devil, and You. You'll see I have outlined our passage into three sections with the same headings. Remember, the slides can be found just under this week's teaching. So our outline is this, the shepherd, which is verses 1 through 7, the devil, verses 8 and 9, and you, verses 10 through 14. Sounds good. So let's begin with the shepherd and verses 1 through 7. Peter begins this part of his letter by encouraging leaders in verse 2 to shepherd the flock of God. Now both Marianne and I have referenced the story of our author Peter denying Jesus and then Jesus restoring Peter back to relationship. Do you remember what Peter or what Jesus asked Peter to do in obedience? We see it in John chapter 21. Let's look at it again. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love him? Now Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. If we boil down to its essence, Jesus says to Peter, If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my sheep. If you love me, feed my lambs. Now this event was so pivotal in Peter's life, he would never forget obedience to God is shown by feeding and tending God's sheep. And because of this, it makes sense for Peter to talk about shepherds and flocks in his letters, as he does in this week's passage. A flock is a group of sheep, and it probably is no surprise to you, sheep are the most frequently mentioned animal in the Bible. And there's two reasons for this. First, sheep were very important to the agriculture when the Bible was written. And second, the qualities of sheep and shepherds make them wonderful metaphors for spiritual truths. So for Peter, the metaphor flock of God in verse 2 and flock in verse 3 represent believers and followers of Jesus. Shepherds, accordingly, also in verse 2, are those who teach and nurture believers. But in verse 4, Peter speaks of the chief shepherd, who we know is Jesus. Earlier in his letter, in 1 Peter 2.25, Peter refers to Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. In Hebrews 13.20, Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep, and Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John 10, 11. Now, God as shepherd is one of the most endearing images in all of scripture. As shepherd, God is shown as guiding, protecting, saving, and gathering in both the Old and the New Testaments. I personally love the word picture of the lost sheep in Luke, where Jesus tells of the good shepherd leaving the 99 sheep and he goes to find the one lost sheep, searching until he finds it and joyfully carrying that sheep home. But probably the most well known and loved Bible story of a shepherd is Psalm 23. This beloved psalm shows God as our provider, our guide, and our protector. So beautiful. So much so that I would love for all of us to say it out loud together. Will you say it with me out loud as you're watching this teaching? Go ahead and turn to Psalm 23 in your Bible. Feel free to pause the video. I'll wait for you. Here we go. Psalm 23, let's say it together. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you. Isn't that so good? Now, I have an idea for you to consider In the midst of the coronavirus outbreak, we are being schooled, and rightly so, on how long we should wash our hands. I hope you're following the guidelines and teaching your children. 20 seconds of hand washing is the goal. We hear regularly that we should sing the ABC song or happy birthday two times because that's about 20 seconds. But what if we said memorize scripture for 20 seconds instead? Now, there's an idea. Now, the entirety of Psalm 23, if you say it in a meaningful way, is about 35 seconds. I timed myself. That is how dedicated I am to you. I'm sure the CDC would be fine if we washed our hands for 35 seconds. But if you want to stop at 20 seconds, washing your hands and saying the 23rd Psalm, you would end with, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Isn't that perfect? Our world is full of fear right now. How impactful would it be if we reminded ourselves of these great truths a dozen times a day or more when we wash our hands? Let me challenge you. What if we considered our daily hand-washing time as an opportunity to remind ourselves and our children of the Lord as our shepherd? Trust me, your kids are going to learn their ABCs. But this could be one simple, beautiful way to help you and those you love develop a new spiritual discipline. Just imagine, all that extra hand washing could be good for your body and your soul at the same time. If that sounds like an idea you'd like to try, make note of it and do what I've done write it on a note card or print it out, tape it to your mirror in the bathroom or the window in your kitchen above your sink where you wash your hands. That's just one idea of how God can redeem this time. Now, there's something else to consider as Peter refers to Jesus as our chief shepherd. Remember, in Peter's day, they had the Old Testament as their scriptures So when Peter refers to Jesus as our chief shepherd, he probably did have the 23rd Psalm in mind. Ultimately, the 23rd Psalm is a testimony that in God, we lack nothing. In God, we lack nothing. And the truth from this section, as we look at Jesus as our shepherd is this. With God, I have all that I need. With God, I have all that I need. Do you believe it? Let's look at the phrases line by line of this famous psalm through the lens of, With God, I have all that I need. The Lord is my shepherd. Here we see I am in the care of our chief shepherd, Jesus. This sheep has all she needs. I shall not want. I shall not lack anything because the God of the universe has unlimited resources. This sheep has all she needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What kind of sheep lies down in green pastures? A sheep that is not hungry. If a sheep is in green pastures and she is not full, she'll be eating, not lying down. This sheep has all she needs. He leads me beside still waters. A sheep that is being led beside still waters is not thirsty. Otherwise, she would be stopping for a drink. This sheep has all she needs. He restores my soul. God is the healer and redeemer of my soul as I join him in relationship. This sheep has all she needs. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. As I follow him, who I am is being changed to be more like him. This sheep has all she needs. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That is why there is no fear, because God is with us. This sheep has all she needs. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These represent the shepherd's strength and protection. This sheep has all she needs. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, there are different ways to view this verse, but I like the view that reminds us, since Jesus has called us to love our enemies and God's provision is so great, I can invite my enemies to join me at the table. And in the midst of being with my enemies, God is with me. The sheep has all she needs. You anoint my head with oil. This refers to how the Lord welcomes us and provides for us abundantly. This sheep has all she needs. My cup overflows. We're not just full. We are overflowing. God gives us more than our cup can hold. This sheep has all she needs. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Literally, God's favor and kindness is chasing down the one he loves. This sheep has all she needs. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We think of this as eternal life with Jesus, and that is lovely. But really, the psalmist means for us to begin now. Now. You are shortchanging yourself and everyone else around you if you're only living for heaven. The kingdom of God is now. Your new life is now. This sheep has all she needs. That's an idea of what it might look like to follow Jesus as our chief shepherd and view Psalm 23 through our truth. With God, I have all I need. Doesn't that sound good? Let's look at the last verse in this section, verse 7. You might be familiar with it. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now, this verse has probably been a favorite of Christians since Peter first wrote the letter. We print it on mugs and wall hangings and note cards and calendars. And with good reason. Our God is a God who cares for us. How incredible is that? That the creator and sustainer of the universe cares for us. It's amazing. Another way the word cares can be translated is thinks about. God thinks about you. God thinks about me. I don't know about you, but there are times I feel pretty insignificant in this world. Nobody's following me on Instagram or Facebook. Surely God has more important things to think about than me. But there it is in verse 7, he cares for me, and he cares for you. Sometimes it's hard to wrap our brains around that fact. As some of you know, I work at a chaplain at a hospital, and sometimes when I'm talking with patients, they start talking about God and who they think he is. And sometimes even people who identify as Christians aren't completely sure about God's character. Now, when we're answering those really big questions about who God is, my favorite professor in seminary liked to start with how God defines himself. We see that in the book of Exodus. The beginning of God's description of himself is in Exodus 34, 6. Let's look at it. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Did you catch it? God's description of himself begins with the word merciful. I love to point this out to people who are unsure about their view of God in the Bible. But the very first word God uses is merciful. Other translations use the word compassionate. This is so important to know. You need to hear this. The very first word God uses to describe himself is merciful or compassionate. That's not always the word we think of first when we're describing God, but it should be. Because that's how God describes himself. Peter agrees with this when he tells us in verse 7 God cares for you. And the reason God cares for you is because that is who he is. He is a caring God. We are to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. So incredible. Now, please hear that in the deepest part of who you are. He cares for you. Write it down if you need to, circle it, underline it, whatever you need to do to know that he cares for you. Let's go back to Peter's letter, and let's take a little bit of a wider view looking at that verse, because we might see something else. Let's look at verses 6 and 7 together. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Often we quote verse 7 by itself, but when we look closely, we see those two verses go together. And a little bit larger of a view, we see this entire section is about humility. In fact, in verse 5, Peter says we should clothe ourselves with humility. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we clothe ourselves in humility? And the answer is in verse 7, by casting all our cares on him. We humble ourselves by casting all our cares on him. That seems surprising, doesn't it? Verse 7 is beautiful, showing us how much God loves us. We clearly see the reason that we are to cast our cares on him is because he loves us, because he cares for us. We love that. We're so grateful for that. But the other reason that you cast your cares on him is because it humbles us. All of a sudden, that isn't quite so endearing, is it? Verse seven actually could read this way. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you and it humbles you. Now, how does that sit with us? Let's just say that's probably not gonna show up on a mug because the reality is we don't like to be humbled. Now, the word humbled is all about positioning. We are below God and he is above us. But the original hearers of Peter's letter would have had much more clearly seen the connection between casting our cares and humbling ourselves than we do in English. So, how do we humble ourselves? By casting our anxieties and our worries on Him. But really, how does casting our anxieties on Him humble us? Good question. So good, in fact. Let's say it again. How does casting our anxieties on God humble us? Casting our anxieties on him means that we understand that we don't have all the answers. And it seems to me the opposite of humble is arrogant, Could Peter be saying it is actually arrogant of us to keep our anxieties to ourselves and not give our anxieties and worries to God? Proud people try to take matters into their own hands, and the reason we don't turn to God is pride. Humble people trust God. Humble people trust God. Proud people try to take matters into their own hands. Humble people trust God. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul writes, For we were so utterly burdened to be on our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God. Humble people trust God. In the Old Testament, we read the person who trusts themselves is cursed. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 7 tells us, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. Humble people trust God. And the way you humble yourself is by casting all your anxieties on God, not just some of them, not just the major ones. Peter says, all of them, all, every, each, the whole, the totality, humble people cast all their anxieties on God. Proud people don't. So what does that mean that proud people do? Okay, hold on here, because I'm going to say it very quiet, because it might sting a little bit. What do proud people do? Proud people worry. Oh, my goodness. We are in such a worry-filled time. But do you know what? God knows this. And he views us with compassion because he knows who we are. He knows we have anxieties. He knows we have fears. Now, I did a little Bible search, and I found God tells us not to fear in at least 16 different ways in the Bible. 16 ways. He knows us and knows we are like sheep, prone to be afraid, to have anxiety. So here are the 16 ways God encourages us not to fear in the Bible. Are you ready? Because it's a good list. Do not fear, fear not, do not be afraid, do not be fearful, do not be in dread, do not be distressed, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, do not be anxious, do not be alarmed, do not be terrified, do not be concerned, do not panic, do not let your heart be faint, do not waver, do not lose heart. Isn't that a good list? I would say God knows the human heart well. He knows us. Do you have anxieties? Join the club. Anxieties are normal in a fallen world. Now, some of us have more or greater anxieties than others, but we all have them. The more important question is this. What are you going to do with your anxieties? What are you going to do with them? You have a choice. God lovingly commands you and me to humble ourselves under his mighty hand by casting all our anxieties on him. The other way to interpret the word casting is stop worrying and trust. Stop worrying and trust because he cares for you. As Christians, could it be that perhaps we could be the least anxious of everyone during the coronavirus? Because our God cares enough about us that he actually gave us a guide for what to do with our anxieties. What does that look like? What does it look like to cast our anxieties on him? It looks like prayer. It looks like praying our true feelings to God. Actually say to God what you're feeling. God, I'm anxious. I'm feeling insecure. I'm scared. I'm concerned. I'm worried. I feel terrified. I feel vulnerable. I'm afraid. And then talk to him about what is leading you to those feelings if this is new, I know it sounds strange at first, but once you get used to it, it becomes more comfortable, and then it becomes natural. That is how we cast our anxieties on him. God uses emotion words, and, if, and we can trust him enough to respond with our own emotions, our own feelings. Be gentle with yourself. This is a process we grow into. It more than likely will not happen overnight. But every time you cast your anxieties on him, it is creating a new pathway in your brain, a new pattern. And so the next time it will be easier to cast your anxieties on him. And the time after that, a bit easier. But at first, you will have to be intentional about not worrying, but casting. Not worrying, but casting. I am reminded again who the author of our letter is. It's Peter. The one who put too much faith in himself and said he would never deny Jesus. The one who himself had to be humbled for all of history to see the story of him denying Jesus is told in all four Gospels. It is the author of our letter who was himself humbled, who is telling us to humble ourselves. The one who looked at the Lord face to face. Peter reminds us of this when he calls himself a witness in verse one. When we in humility cast all our anxieties on him, then he can intervene and bring blessing out of suffering. He can redeem our suffering. In verse 6, we see the phrase, God's mighty hand. In the Bible, this phrase is usually thought of in the context of God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt. We see this, for example, in Deuteronomy 5.15. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Where are you struggling to believe that God is all you need? Where do you need his mighty hand to intervene in your story, to redeem your story? With your physical health, your mental health, your children, your finances, your job, relationships. With God's mighty hand, he always gets the last word. Not fear, not concerns, not worry, not anxiety. Remember our truth from this section. With God, I have all that I need. It might even help if you say it out loud with me. Are you ready? With God, I have all that I need. All right, we've looked at our first section with God as our shepherd. Now let's look at the devil. We see this in verses eight and nine from chapter five of 1 Peter. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. As we know, Peter is in Rome, and there are unthinkable persecutions happening to Christians. Now, one of the ways Christians were persecuted under Nero was to put animal skins on Christians and have them in front of crowds in the Colosseums. The lions would be released to attack and kill them as entertainment. Some scholars think that is what Peter is referring to in verse 8. I think this is one of the most impactful descriptions of the devil in the Bible the enemy of your soul is not just messing with you, not just harassing you. The enemy of your soul wants to devour you. As Toby Mac says in his song, The Elements, this ain't neutral what we're up against. The devil is looking to devour you and your faith in God. A couple of years ago at the river we studied the book of Ephesians. I was really taken with Ephesians 6:1, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What has stayed with me is the definition of the word schemes. A scheme is a large-scale systematic plan or arrangement for attaining some particular object. The devil has a large-scale, systematic plan to devour you, to destroy you. His goal is for you to give up your faith in God, to get you to turn from God and rely on yourself. Because the basic nature of sin is to trust only oneself rather than God. So the truth from this section is the devil wants me to believe I don't have enough. The devil wants me to believe I don't have enough. He wants us to believe we don't have enough time, money, resources, whatever it is. Now with the coronavirus, our world is screaming at us right now, telling us to be afraid. And we're responding by buying very large quantities of items. Sometimes it's difficult to have perspective. Now, in our family, we shop at Costco. Now, one thing we have not purchased since the onset of the coronavirus is sanitizing wipes. And the reason is that a couple of years ago, I bought a multi-pack at Costco. Now, the reason I bought this large amount was because every year in our school district, part of the required school supplies is a canister of sanitizing wipes. So now we've had this for years, and out of this big multi-pack, we have three canisters left. But a couple of weeks ago, it seemed like maybe we didn't have enough. So three different times when I was at the store, I looked for wipes, and all three times the stores were sold out, and they had these little signs telling us that they were out. Well, after a while, you start to feel a little nervous, right? So this is what I did. I finally decided to count the actual number of wipes we had on hand, and this is what I figured out. If we use a wipe every day to disinfect our doorknobs, our light switches, our faucets, and refrigerator door handle, and we do it every day, those three canisters have enough wipes to last us more than eight months. (laughs) I don't need to buy wipes. I'm good with wipes. I know it's kind of a funny story, but I think it makes a point. I was getting that anxious feeling like I didn't have enough. And that's what the devil does. That's how he stirs us up and he makes us question. And more than anything, the enemy of our soul, the devil, wants us to believe God is not enough and that God is not doing enough for us. Peter is telling us we need to be sober-minded. Sober-minded means clear-headed, The message version says, keep a cool head. I like that. Sisters and brothers, we need to think clearly. The devil wants us to be freaked out right now. I'm not saying don't buy what you need. Do. Take care of your family. But maybe you need to do what I had to do and actually count what you have. Some stores are saying they will not accept returns of overbought items during this time because people are going crazy with their buying. And it's all due to fear. The devil is the one who stirs up suffering to destroy the faith of God's people. So, what do we do in response to the devil's attack? Peter tells us to resist. Other ways you can think about resist is to set yourself against, withstand, oppose. You get the idea. This is an intentional act against the devil. So the question is, where in your life is the devil trying to convince you you don't have enough? That actually God is not enough? With your physical health, your mental health, your children... Your finances, your job, your relationships. We talked earlier about humility. I think this is another place where we have to intentionally rely on the Lord. Only with God's help can we resist the devil. Here's another area where we have to humble ourselves and seek God's help so we can resist the devil. Because our enemy, our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And that someone is you and me and the people we love. Okay, so we've talked about God is our shepherd and our truth with God I have all that I need. And we've talked about the devil and our truth that the devil wants me to believe I don't have enough. Now let's talk about you and me, all of us. Verse 10 tells us, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four incredible words. Restore. Restore describes ships being repaired after a battle or storm. Confirm. Confirm denotes firmness of purpose. Strengthen usually means to make physically strong. And establish is the idea of giving foundation. And after we have suffered a little while, this is what believers can look forward to experiencing. Remember back to the beginning of our, story, of our study this year in the river when James told us in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. Well, here we are facing the coronavirus. It's a trial. But it's important to remember our definition of joy in suffering. Do you remember it? Joy in suffering is in anticipation of what God is going to do. Joy in suffering is in anticipation of what God is going to do. Why can we have joy right now in the middle of the coronavirus? Because we are anticipating that God himself is going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. I love that. God himself is going to do that. Now I grant you, some of those words will be finished completely in heaven. But when we anticipate only heaven, we miss what God is doing in our lives right now. Because I guarantee you, some of these good words will happen after the coronavirus is a memory. And some of these good words may even be starting right now. So how do we get to a place where we can be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established? Well, it's right there in verse 10. Let's look again. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. The God of all grace has called you. He has invited you. Earlier in this passage in verse 4 we learned of Jesus being our shepherd and here in verse 10 we read of God calling us. John 10:27 combines both of these in such a sweet way when Jesus says, "My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me." So it's up to us. How are we going to respond when we hear his voice? When we hear his call, how are you going to respond to his call? You have two choices, to follow or to not follow. Peter knew these choices well. Deny yourself and follow Christ, or deny Christ and follow yourself. Those are the only two options. Deny yourself and follow Christ, or deny Christ and follow yourself. So what does it mean to respond to God's call by following him? Well, that's our final truth. Following God's call means trusting in him. Following God's call means trusting in him. In the end, this lesson all comes down to trust. Because when we trust in him, we believe that with God, we have all that we need. Did you see how those two truths work together? When we trust in him, we believe that with God, we have all that we need. So I ask you, are you responding to God's call by following and trusting in him? Where in your life are you struggling to follow and trust him? Your physical health? Your mental health? With your children? Your finances? Your job? Your relationships? I encourage you to trust the Lord in anticipation of what he's going to do. In heaven, yes, but also in anticipation of what God is doing in our lives right now. We just need eyes to see it. Look around and see what God is doing, even now. So in our passage today, we looked at God as shepherd, we looked at the devil and you. And we discovered three truths. With God, I have all that I need. The devil wants me to believe I don't have enough. And following God's call means trusting in him. And now I'm going to end as Peter so beautifully does in his letter in verse 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, help us see what you're doing in our lives right now. How you're restoring, confirming strengthening and establishing us even now. Help us to see that with you we have all that we need. All we need to do is follow and place our trust in you. Help us, God, to do it. Thank you for your goodness to us. May we look for it and may we see it. And as always, may we be quick, Lord to give you praise for every good thing. We love you, God. Amen. Have a great time in your groups.